0: This is episode 60 of No Truce Bar. Say no more. In this particular episode, I speak about the importance of the Moors. Who were the Moors? What did they contribute to Western Europe as far as medicine, agriculture, and architecture? Also, why is it important that we study the Moors? Why do we need to know the relationship between black and white people in a pre Columbian? Thank you for checking out this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Peace. Peace. Welcome back. This is episode 60 of No True. The best up and coming podcast on the internet, and I'm your host, Hoika Winkle Simmons. <clears throat> Pardon me. And once again, I want to thank everybody that has supported, shared a piece of content, uh, just uh, provided any sort of constructive criticism. Decided to you know participate, and if you came on the podcast as a guest, I definitely appreciate you as well. I definitely cannot emphasize enough that every bit of support counts, Um, whether you comment, whatever you do, it definitely helps with engagement, and it helps with getting this platform out there, and uh, I definitely appreciate it because it's really a unique platform, and I don't really uh, see too many other platforms out here uh, doing it quite like I do it. But make sure you follow me on Instagram at Hoy H-O-Y-T underscore K-W-A-K-U underscore Timmons. That's T-I-M-M-O-N-S. And also make sure you follow me on my brand new page, which is underscore No Truths Barred Podcast. And also make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, I'm really trying to grow that as well. So definitely subscribe, hit a like button, comment on a piece of material. So please bear with me, this is a relatively late time for me to record, but my schedule has been extremely hectic and busy, have a lot of work in many other areas, so trying to keep up on everything, but um, I definitely want to deliver this particular episode to you guys tonight because it's been requested. So, say no more, say no more, say no more, I wanted to title this episode that because Whenever people follow me on Instagram or any other type of social media, people are always asking me, why do you talk about slavery and systemic racism so much? And I try to make sure that No Truths Barred is a broad podcast. When I talk about uh, particular subjects, I wanted one to relate to myself and being a black person. I may be inclined to kind of speak or elucidate upon black issues, not saying that I'm relegated to that only, but my predilection will start there as it pertains to content creation. And I've had people come and they ask, when will you talk about things dealing with pre-colonial societies as it relates to Africa? So I I thought about that for a little bit and I say I agree, and and it's not that I don't read about and I do not research pre colonial Black African societies. I just think that when you look at a lot of the issues that affects us on a day to day basis, we kind of have to examine a lot of the the uh, legislation that was passed in this country, uh, a lot of the things like redlining that 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 happened. Uh, you know, the federal government forbidding. Uh, Banks to to give mortgages to um, black people That were looking to become homeowners You look at the transatlantic slave trade The domestic slave trade All of these things have produced issues That still affect us to this very day But I said, you know what? You don't want to ever become monotonous And have the paucity of being relegated To one specific train of thought And so I said, well What do I want to talk about? You know, what example do I want to give of black people in a pre-colonial paradigm, if you will, that shows us in a different light? And when I say us, I'm not, that's kind of a, a little bit more of a broader term. So many times when we speak about black history, when we speak about black cultures, one of the things that we often go to is to talk about ancient Egypt. And if you're familiar with Egyptology or any of the great scholars who have written extensively about ancient Egypt, whether it be Shikanta Jop, whether it be uh, uh, J.A. Rogers, whether it be people like Mustafa Gadala, uh, many uh, great uh, intellectuals and scholars have written on uh, Nile Valley Civilization. And a lot of times we like to kind of start there, and I don't blame people. When you when you study ancient Egypt, you can a- a- attribute many things to the to the Egyptian civilization. You know, for example, you look at some of the earliest solar calendars. A uh, matter of fact, if you look uh, at Manetho, so Manetho is the individual that was uh, sanctioned under Ptolemy Philadelphus II, I believe in the the Do I want to say the 33rd dynasty? I'm not exactly sure which dynasty But essentially he's the person that classified Egypt into specific dynasties And one of the things that he said That really caught my attention Was that to properly study ancient Egypt You should allow a span of about 32,000 years Within the ancient Egyptian mythos there's an epoch called Septepi, and the epoch of Septepi, it kind of reminds me of the Akkadian kings list. If you're not familiar with the Akkadian kings list or the Sumerian kings list, it's these king, this list of kings, and on the surface, it just looks like uh, a, 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 a king's list is listing different you know rulers or what have you. But one of the uh, conspicuous things that you would actually find out about these kings lists is that these kings lived exceptionally long. So, for example, I'm not really trying to get into the Anunnaki mythos. But if you look at uh, some of Zechariah Section's work, Zechariah Section wrote the... What was it? The 10th planet? The 10th planet? The 12th planet? I can't remember, but essentially... He talks about the fact that it's this uh, planet, this rogue planet that has an orbit of about uh, 3,600,000 years. And on this planet, beings came down to Earth. They genetically manipulated some of the early hominids, created humans to mine gold in in modern-day Mesopotamia and South Africa, et cetera. And that due to that, these kings lived exceptionally long, these rulers that ruled on earth um, in, in the in the antediluvian period, which means before the flood. Because not only the Bible, but uh, the Papavu, the Mayan Bible, uh, in, in, in the Sumerian text, when you talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh, and you look at uh, this figure named Ziasudra, which would later on uh, uh, amongst the Akkadian, uh, the Akkadian mythos uh, would be utnapishtim And in the biblical mythos or the biblical story, it would be uh, Noah. And these kings that existed had these long kingdoms. But anyway, back to the point, I could go on tangents. But back to the particular point, when you uh, study Septepi, these kings have like these long periods to rule. And uh, matter of fact, I've came across certain literature that kind of says like uh, if you study... Uh, Ifa, and you look at the pantheon of deities or the pantheon the pantheon excuse me of orishas there's a specific orisha named shango and one of the myths i read about shango which kind of reminds me of osiris is that these were actually based off of real people that existed and essentially these people were so honorable so brave like so brilliant so courageous that posthumously, these particular figures ended up becoming deified. And when I think about Septepi and I think about Manetho, uh, I'm not saying it's real that you had a king that may rule for like 300 years, but I think um, that ancient Egyptian culture is far older than we'll like to give it credit for. Uh, like you you, you look at the um, uh, the Haremma, H- Perumaket, which would which would have been the name that the Sphinx would have been called by during the New Kingdom, and we always attribute the Sphinx to the Fourth Dynasty under Khafre, and you know the whole thing Khafre went, you know, uh, and created the Sphinx. But uh, I actually read work that stated that Khafre remodeled or renovated the Sphinx, and that it's actually far older. And people like Robert Schock and his work, uh, Robert du- Robert Bouval and, and, and some of his work, um, and I think even Graham Hancock, and these people are kind of not mainstream archaeologists or anthropologists or Egyptologists, but I think they've put out a lot of great work uh, nonetheless. And one of the things that they pointed out, and I've actually seen articles independent of these three individuals is that they pointed out that the space has is a, a indication of water water erosion due to rain. Now the issue is that that climate has been arid for thousands of years, and what they say, um, and when I say they, I'm not saying an ambiguous day. I'm saying a they in the sense of the people that I just named. But what they would point to, what they would allude to, is the fact that, uh. The, the 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 um erosion on the space for it to have rained that much and that frequently it would have had to easily been anywhere from eight to ten thousand years ago. Now, um, if you look at uh, ten thousand five hundred BCE, we were in the house of uh, Leo, and apparently, uh, excuse me. Once again, sometimes I kind of go off the head because I come in contact with so much information. But essentially, Leo, uh, we were we were under the constellation of Leo. And that was the whole point of the Spanx being, you know, the, being configured like a lion and what have you. That's what they say. But Egypt was many firsts. One of the world's oldest medical doctrines are actually in ancient Egypt. The Edwin Smith Papyrus. The Edwin Smith Papyrus actually goes back to about fifteen hundred BCE, which is during the first Intermediate Period in ancient Egypt. And the Edwin Smith Papyrus, I mean, it talks about how to readjust dislocated bones. It talks about uh, uh, cataract removal. It talks about surgical procedures. And this is in 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 deep in antiquity that we have this papyrus. Uh, the hip. The, the matter of fact. Um, uh, In in Egypt, you had uh, people that were aspiring To really learn medicine from the Hellenists That would actually go to Egypt That would learn uh, medicinal knowledge Um, Matter of fact, the Hippocratic Oath If you will, that we attribute to Hippocrates um, He actually uh, got from his studies When he was in ancient Egypt And um, let me make this clarification I'm not saying that uh, anything was. I'm not. I don't want to uh, get into the whole thing that something was stolen from ancient Egypt and they copied it and they put it over here. That's not what I'm talking about, and that's not what I want to. I want to drive home. What I would rather like to drive home is that ancient Egypt. I mean, you're, you're talking about. You're talking about such an old ancient world and civilization. You know, to you, you, you literally could do an 80-hour podcast talking about really just the first few dynasties of ancient Egypt. I mean, that's how much history and information that you have there. But I want to inculcate the fact that Egypt was a hub of intellectualism. It was a hub of commerce. It was a hub of architecture, and I dare I say, and I don't want to, I don't want to compare Egypt to America, but I would say, to a degree, if you were around the Mediterranean, it kind of would have had that attractiveness to come there uh because it just was such a huge cultural center. So you're talking about an ancient society where you know a. a People came there to study medical knowledge. People came there to study mathematics. You know, Pythagoras came uh, and, and studied in Egypt as well. And like I said, I'm not spending this podcast on Egypt. But you look at the pyramids. Uh, pyramidos means uh, fire sensor. Um, one of the terms, and, and the Egyptians had different terms over different periods. Keep in mind just how long the civilization lasted. Uh that referred to the pir- the pyramids as uh, Mer, and it meant place of ascension. And when they were first constructed, constructed, the the top of the pyramid was covered in gold, and the remaining of the the remaining pyramid was covered in like bright, brilliant, all white limestone. And I could only imagine how that would look if you're coming to Egypt and it's underneath the Egyptian sun. It just had to kind of be breathtaking. Now, some would argue that the Sumerians actually predate Egypt, so the, the Sumerians would have been in the Tigris-Euphrates the Tigris Valley, um, and we're talking about 5000 BCE, all the way through about, let's say, four, I think about fourteen or 1500 BCE, uh, before the Common Era, and like I said, they uh, when you get into this conversation, and you kind of have this dichotomy of people that may fall under the Afrocentric aspect, and you have people that may fall more under the Eurocentric or mainstream aspect of discussing these uh, societies in antiquity. Well, I go back to the Sphinx. That's attributed to Egyptian culture. It's nothing. It's not to take nothing away from the Sumerians, uh, because matter of fact, the people that would later supplant them, the Akkadians. You can look at letters about commerce between the eighteenth uh, dynasty, the eighteenth dynasty uh, pharaoh um, Akhenaten, and one of the kings of the Akkadians as well. And 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 so it's not to knock them, but it's just to look at the significance of Egypt. Um, You look at the Sultan calendar. Matter of fact, one of the oldest calendars in ancient Egypt goes back to about uh, 4,142 BCE. Um, They kept record of the great year. The great year, uh, it takes us about 25 to 26,000 years to complete. Um, We spent at least about, I think, between 1,200 and 1,300 years in each house, and each house represents a constellation of the zodiac. They charted the great year, which would mean they had to have an extensive time of, of reckoning uh, time and celestial bodies. Uh, matter of fact, uh, if you go, se- I believe, 70 miles southwest uh, of Cairo, you'll find um, the ancient site of Napata Playa. And when you look throughout Europe, I believe there's over uh, 10,000 um little monoliths that are kind of like a, a astronomical observatories in Egypt, uh, excuse me, in uh, Western Europe. And you also have these in, in Mesoamerica as well. But the oldest on the planet, although it's not as large as maybe some of the later um, ast- astronomical observatories, but nonetheless, it's still impressive that you had this built Um, around 7,000 years before the common era. And so I just kind of mentioned these things to say that uh, you have a really ancient culture. Check the time here. You have a really ancient culture um, in ancient Egypt that goes back for, for millennia, millennia, millennia. So we can't, we, I don't think that we should look at ancient Egypt in the sense of, you know, being diametrically opposed to it or anything like that. Nor should we believe, you know, oh, we're the descendants of Egyptians. You know, that's a different conversation. But with all that I just said, and I really went on a lengthy tangent about the Egyptians, I actually want to talk about the Moors. And the re- there's a few reasons why I want to talk about the Moors as well. Um. So when you look at the term more, this term has been used, I would say, at least in our era, kind of arbitrarily. And I think people kind of, but then they kind of don't know exactly where the term more comes from. So the term more generically, in general, it just means black. That's what the term more means. Now, some of the etymology in it of the term more, goes back really to the Romans. And to be honest, it goes back earlier to the Phoenicians. So uh, more is a corruption of morus, um, same thing in Greek, and that's built off of the Phoenician term mori. Now, when you listen, when you look at these some of these terms, like for example, uh, Asia or Asu, It's a term that comes from the Assyrians and it denotes the East. If you look at, uh, what else? If you look at uh, the term Marie by the Phoenicians, it denoted uh, Northwestern Africa because the Phoenicians were one of the first groups around the Mediterranean to actually set set up in North Africa around uh, 850 BCE. And they actually established the city of Carthage. Um, And that's where you would get the great uh, leader known as Hannibal by, by Car, and you look at his name; it ne- it means in the grace of the Lord. Because Hannibal um, it at the end of it is the de- the Phoenician deity Baal, so it gives reference to Baal. Um, and you find that name in other uh, ancient Hebrew writings and uh, biblical writings as well, and ancient stuff about uh, Phoenicia. So that's essentially where you get the term more from. And what it became, it became to denote a black person. Now, also here in America, when we talk about the term more, a lot of people would start to think immediately about the Morris Science Temple. And it's no slight to the Moore Science Temple, but that's not what I mean either. And if you look at the Morris Science Temple, essentially the Morris Science Temple was a, um, a kind of a, a black nationalist Islamic sect that was founded here in the United States um, under Timothy Drew or Noble Drew Ali. And it's kind of like a myriad of, of, of uh, Orientalism. Um, uh, some, some forms of, of kind of like uh, Sufism is based off of the, um, what is it called? The Aquarian Gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, there's Circle, Seven, and Run. Uh, and like I said, I don't have any disrespect for that particular organization, but that's not what I mean um, when I say the word more. But the Moors, you know, in different epochs around the Mediterranean, there were like different names that black people were known by. So it's funny enough, I'm talking about the advent of Islam across North Africa. So, uh, excuse me, Egypt would have fell to um the Muslims or the Arabs or the Mohammedans that was coming across, up, you know, over Egypt and gradually make their way across North Africa uh, between, I believe, 639 and 646 uh, A.D., I believe. I'm, a, I'm not good with dates, but uh, Egypt would have fell first. But funny enough, uh, Sudan actually means black, and if you look at some of these... Uh, Arab writers, these travelers that would have first went into West Africa, like Ibn Khaldun, like Ibn Battuta, uh, and a few others, Lu um, they would refer to Africa West and below the Sahara as "Blah," as Sudan, and it means "land of the blacks." So essentially, that's what it means. But that's not the only thing. Like the word "Ingar" or, or "Injer," in and it's another way you can pronounce that. I will not. And I spoke about this in one of my Truth Sessions videos. Uh, the Romans had uh, five different routes that went across North and West Africa. And uh, like I said, you've seen Rome. There's been evidence of Roman coins um, as far south and West Africa as Burkina Faso. And when they went into uh, the uh, expedition was actually led that reached Lake Chad and uh, the bend of the Niger River and different groups called the river different things. Uh, but amongst many of the groups, it was called the Niger River, Great River. And um, I kind of believe that's kind of how it made its way into the, the, uh, the Latin lexicon, if you will. But they also had other terms like fuscus. The Greeks had uh, aeth- Athenopes or Aethiopes, which means uh, burnt face. So that's where you get the word Ethiopian from. And different things, black people were called different things in different parts of uh, history. You know, so, um, but when you're looking at the Moors, you also really kind of have to understand uh, the advent of Islam. Keeping time, keeping time. I'm trying to get you folks in and out. <laughs> but thank you for bearing with me. I'm, I'm kind of tired. This is a late night episode. So uh, if it sounds like I'm sleepy, it's because I am. But... <laughs> But, uh, but no, but you have to look at it. You know, we got to go to 610 CE with the prophet Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him. I don't want to disrespect anyone's beliefs or anybody's religion. Um, But you go back to 16, uh, 610, excuse me, 610 CE and the prophet Muhammad, he received the revelation from the angel Jibreel or Gabriel. And the angel came to him and was like, Ikra, Ikra, recite, recite, Ikra. And he received these uh, recit- recitations. And Muhammad himself was not uh, literate, but he would tell these things, and people would kind of be like the scribes, and they would write down these 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 visions and these proverbs. And this knowledge, you know, on camel bones, leather, leather, leather uh, other things to kind of record it. Um, and I believe the Quran, as we would know it that all of that information i think it would have been codified under either the third or the fourth uh uh, uh prophet or a person under the rashida and that means the rightly guided and these were like the first four people um to be seen as leaders uh after the uh, after the prophet muhammad and please google that i don't feel <laughs> definitely google that but we have to we have to look at that because um One of one of I came across a book uh, by um, Wesley Muhammad and some of the stuff in the book I kind of agree with. And then like some of the stuff in the book I don't really agree with uh, because I just need a little bit more evidence. But if you go back and you study uh, ancient Saudi Arabia or what would become Saudi Arabia, that particular peninsula down in Yemen, there was always close commerce between Ethiopia or the Horn of Africa, and uh, uh, South, Southern Arabia. And one of the, the ideas or theories he put forth in this book that I found rather interesting, when you look at the Prophet Muhammad, he comes from the tribe, the Banu Quraish. And underneath the, the Banu Quraish, he, he descends from the uh, Banu Hashim, which is another group within the big Quraish. The Quraish were like this huge clan um, uh, in, in pre-Islamic Arabia. In Islam, and in Islam, prior to the prophet uh, receiving his revelation, uh, they call that age Jahiliyyah, and Jahiliyyah means the age of ignorance, and so if you notice the Islamic calendar, you know, is is lunar, and it has many more different, uh, uh, way different dates um, and months as well, but prior to him, there were three main deities. That were uh, worshipped And there were many uh, actually But there were three main deities that were worshipped In ancient Saudi Arabia One of those deities being um, Well three of them One being uh, oh, Almost knocked the mic over Don't want to do that But one of the deities in, 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 in ancient Arabia Was a deity Alat uh, Which we would spell as A-L-L-A-T Another one was Al-Uzza Another one was Al-Manah and these particular deities were really venerated. They were all um, women. They were female deities. And so, you know, you had people that were, uh, uh, what's the word, um, venerating those. There's also been some writings that the Kaaba in pre pre Islamic um, Arabia potentially could have been a place of worship for the planet Saturn, um, the cube, and the black symbolism. Um, and in certain uh, pre-Islamic cults, uh, the planet Saturn was venerated as well. And the importance of the Prophet Muhammad is that what he did, he galvanized unity in a really territorial and in, in many warlike cultures. And uh, via the, the religion of Islam, he was able to kind of galvanize unity uh, for these different peoples. And the other thing that it did, it kind of, it codified, well, yeah, it codified uh, the Arabic as kind of like this official language that has an official text. So it really gave, essentially it did kind of like um, what the King James Bible did for Europe. I know a lot of people are, King James wrote this and that. It really just kind of put the Bible into... English um, and, and, and codified kind of the language, if you will. You know, you look at Martin Luther and what he did when he issued his 95 thesis and uh, he took the Bible from the Latin and he put it into German. So you kind of are essentially getting that in a way earlier epoch from the prophet Muhammad. So it's kind of like important to understand that. And the word Muslim would have came later. I'm not exactly sure which period it would have came in. But uh, the early uh, Muslims would have been called Muhammadans in many cases. In certain cases, they were called Saracens um, as well. You know, they had, kind of had these arbitrary names that they would have been called by different groups. Oh, shit. Did I break the mic? Hello, hello, hello. Hold on. Let me see if the audio still working. Uh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I didn't break the mic. All right, guys, I'm sorry. I was a little worried there. I'm just moving this mic around. Pardon me. Checking time. Okay. You know, I'm not gonna hold you folks too long. But yeah, so you know, you have to look at um, you have to look at Islam because Islam was driving force. And really, you had different empires. Like you had the, uh, the Sassanid Empire. You had the the Sassanid Empire. You had uh, Byzantium or the Byzantine Empire as well, which essentially is just the Roman Empire. It's just that they kind of spoke Greek, but it's just the you know after the uh, the Western Roman Empire fell, the Byzantium Empire would have been around, um, yeah, for about another thousand years until like I think it was fourteen ninety one or ninety two when the Ottomans came. And took took uh, Constantinople, and then Constantinople became Istanbul. So I think it was somewhere around that period. But yeah, um, because uh, before Islam, uh, the Byzantine Empire uh, had a hold over Egypt, and it was Islam that would have uh, taken it. It was one of those the first Rashidun Caliphate that would have taken uh, Egypt, and later on the city of Cairo would have been established, I think, like 959 A.D., and that would have been done under the Fatima uh, dynasty, excuse me. And this is when, like, uh, some of the limestone off of the pyramids would have been used kind of like for quarries and certain other building projects as well. Um, And it was like there was some dilapidation of the pyramids, too. So it wasn't just all people taking, you know, ripping off the limestone, but there was like a myriad of factors as to why the pyramids look like they do The way they do right now, but another group you have to look at when you're studying the advent of Islam across North Africa is the Garmentes. The Garmentes would have been primarily in the in the place of where modern day Libya is right now, and these people have an ancient history in North Africa, uh, a history going all the way back um, to to the Phoenicians. So you're talking about at least a thousand years before, and This is one of the groups that, um, although they did kind of put up a fight, they kind of were eventually absorbed into Islam as it made its way across North Africa. And you had uh, people that were like fleeing, that were going south, um, south and west uh, with the uh, approach and the advent of Islam across North Africa. So these people are important because they would kind of go on to uh, kind of constitute one of the big groups that would have been a part of the Moors when they eventually went into Spain. So it's important to know that, but there were like dozens of groups across the Fessian um, that would have been impacted by Islam, you know, thousands of groups. So, you know, that's kind of one of the ones that are more popular, the Garmentes, which is G A R M A N T E S. -S 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 And uh, they would have been like hugely popular, you know, uh, across the, um, across that area that would be like modern day Libya and whatnot as well. Um, so I'm looking at it like, and that's like uh, when you look at North Africa and the advent of Islam across North Africa, which is hugely important because these would be the people where, it be, whether they be the Blackamoors or the Tawny Moors, and the Tawny Moors were like there would have been like more lighter hued uh, Moors and, and Tomashek people that would have mixed into this uh, amalgamated uh, populace that would have came to go into uh, Spain. But another uh, aspect of this that we have to talk about briefly is the advent of Islam into West Africa. Now you can go and you can pick up some of the work by uh, Ibn Khaldun. Uh, definitely read some of Ibn Battuta's work, but Ibn Battuta would have came a lot later. He would have came during the uh he would have Ibn Battuta would have came during the advent, not even the advent really, but kind of like the zenith of the Malian Empire. And so when he came uh to Mali, because Ibn Battuta is really one of the, the 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 primary uh sources that we have when you talk about a, a non African experience in the Mali Empire, and I, I suggest anybody please 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 uh, read Ibn Battuta's travels. He actually was sixty six years old. He was also I don't he was also uh, illiterate. He dictated uh, his experiences to a scribe, and this person, um, and I think it was just not just one, but it was like a few people that actually put these writings together. And Ibn Battuta, he went to Mali. Uh, during the reign of uh, of Mansa Suleiman. And this would have been after Mansa Musa. Mansa Musa uh, probably would have been like a few, uh, I think maybe like a few decades earlier, Mansa Musa would have, would have been the ruler of Mali. But anyway, uh, you have to look at the advent of Islam into North Africa. Now, one of the first places that kind of became Islamicized in, in, uh, in West Africa, excuse me, would be Kanin and Kanin would be somewhere like on the on the border of modern-day Chad and Nigeria, Northern Nigeria. And they were one of the first places uh, to really be converted to Islam, I believe in the ninth century. And one of the things I've often debated people about and I don't really agree about, people will say, and really certain scholars will argue that if you took Arabic away, okay, if you took Arabic away, you took Islam away, West Africa does not have a written language or a written script. So I want to just briefly touch on this, the concept that a script is synonymous with a civilization. If we look at the origins, the, the, the impetus to write, to create characters, it was all primarily based upon trade. These people were not more adept or astute than anybody else or a hunter-gatherer that did not have a, 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 a ossified script of letters that, that were emblematic of certain sounds and, and emotions and, 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 and symbols and, and epigraphs or anything like that. It was all based around commerce. That's really in many places. That's how you get the origin of writing, especially in agricultural societies where you have property you're trading you're, and, and, and you're bartering things and you're, 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 you're trading goods, etc. And so that's really where it comes from. But I want to put this out there. When people use that, and once again, I think it's racist, and what I always emphasize, I don't do the race uh, thing. Now, I'm very much uh, into my culture, into my history. I love Black people. I consider myself pro-Black. But when I say that, I'm talking about I love who I am. I love learning about my history. I love to learn what we've contributed uh, to to the world history. But I don't buy into the notion that based on phenotype... That somebody is uh, subjacent to the other person just kind of strictly predicated upon race because that is pseudoscience. That has no basis in reality. Even if you want to try to, like, quote or pull from the IQ test and all of this stuff or the bell curve, I don't buy into it. It's not real. You know, uh, intellect is is a product of various uh, circumstances and environment. Not... Uh, You because you're black or because you're white or because you're this or that You just kind of naturally have this acumen that is innate to your way of thinking or looking at the world That's not true But this is the one thing that I want to challenge Many times when racists want to point out the inferiority of Africa And more specifically Western Central Africa They point to the fact that we did not have a script We did not have a writing system prior to the coming of Islam and Arabic. Now, let's scale this back really, really quick, and I'm gonna move on. If you were to look, if you were to look at Europe, for example, in certain periods in European history, they would tell us that Latin was the language of scholars. Greek was the language of scholars. But what do both of those alphabets have in common? They come from the Phoenician script. Just like the alphabet that we use now before the coming of of Rome. So uh <clears throat> Rome has like a complicated history like with the with the Visigoths and all of that because uh, the Gauls, they first attacked Rome prior Because Julius Caesar would have went into Gaul Which is modern day France And he killed and enslaved over a million people They captured the king His name was like Ventraqua or something It started with a V, I can't pronounce it But uh, uh, Initially the, the the Gauls They would have, they sacked and decimated Rome in 390 BCE I mean to the point where it stuck with Rome for centuries afterwards Like I mean it was bad uh, but if you look at these, uh, tribal groups that would have inhabited Western Europe prior to the coming of Rome, um, they actually had like really rudimentary scripts. Like one of them is called runic. So runic would have been like a script that would have been used, uh, I think like amongst the, the Celtic, the Celtoi and Celtic or Celtoi, it just means covered people. So it was a name that was, um, Given to these people by the Romans, it wasn't a name that they gave themselves. We really don't know what they called themselves. And you look at the Roman o- occupation of the British Isles after the defeat of Queen uh, Baudetia or Boudica, um, where the ancient Brits, they would you know cover themselves in a, a blue paint, go into battle. Had a real kind of tribal, uh, almost Native American-esque way of living life. But my point being, is that none of these groups contributed a script, a written script, if you will, that we use today currently in 2021, essentially what we use in the West, what we use in Western Europe, and what uh, areas that were, were conquered by Alexander the Great um, after his campaigns, you know, through Egypt and uh, over in Asia, they would have used Greek All of this comes from a Phoenician script. So if you want to be technical, nobody really created a script that we all use as a collective currently. And so that's just one of the things that I kind of wanted to address. And matter of fact, if you look at the Igbo people, ancient Igbo. Now, I don't know if this is still used now, but they actually did have a script. It was called the Insabidi script. And in northern Nigeria, they have pyramids as well. It's called the Insude Pyramids, but that's like a whole different... That's a whole different discussion. I'm not even getting into that tonight. Um, But the other thing to note is that Islam primarily came into West Africa uh, through traders, through commerce. And so the thing that Islam did, uh, in addition to a lot of other stuff, is that it really opened up a lot of places and markets... To that Mediterranean world, to that uh, to that Eastern world of of, of Baghdad, to place it so it's kind of like if you were to to get into Islam, it 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 kind of kept kept you in the loop of commerce of what would have been going on around the Mediterranean, if you will. That's kind of like a basic way to put it. But that was like one of the benefits of of becoming a Muslim. A matter of fact, if you look at uh what is the guy's work? I'm trying to think of this this scholar right now. I cannot I think I have his book here. I think I do. Uh I am trying to think of this scholar's name and it is slipping my mind. I cannot think of his name. And no I do not have the book here. But anyway, he uh <clears throat> What was the name? I'm sorry, y'all. I'm trying to think of the name of this particular book so much. The something civilization, the destruction of black civilization. Gosh, what is his name? Oh, my goodness. I'm seeing his face and everything. But anyway, (laughs) in that book, he talks about the fact that a lot of times when we talk about the Malian empire, we like make it synonymous with Islam. But one of the things that we don't understand, uh, and many of us don't understand, about Islam in West Africa, especially under the uh, the Malian empire, is that, uh, and a good friend of mine, my good friend Melvin pointed this out to me in a discussion, is that they were, the, the under the Malian empire, uh, they were far, far enough away from the huge islamic centers to where they could kind of put their own perspective and their own fingerprint on how they practice islam and i mentioned ibn batuta earlier because uh ibn batuta when he um when he came to walata he noticed that women were muslims but they would walk around with their breasts out he would notice that they had no problem being sexual with whomever man that they chose uh, to be sexual with. And that was one of the things he he noticed and he kind of was like taken aback by that. And it's funny enough, the the, the people that encountered Ibn Battuta they laughed at him because of how he treated or how he was kind of like weirded out or appalled by the the nakedness of, of a woman's body. So even with that, uh, we still had our own way of, of doing Islam. And uh, there's a place in Mauritania called Shingetti, And Shingetti was a place where people gathered before going on Hajj. But in, in due time, like by the 11th or 12th century, Shingetti actually became kind of a, a holy site in West Africa. Um, and people, if you didn't if you weren't going to Mecca, a lot of people would go there. Uh, and once again, you know, powerful, powerful influence and a point of commerce as well. So if you notice with all of these kind of Islamic centers within West Africa, it was always connected to commerce and even in North Africa as well, it was always connected to commerce. And even with the slavery in North Africa, you know, if you uh, definitely examine when you guys get the time, I'm not going to talk about it on this podcast, but look at the, uh, Slavery on the Barbary Coast. This is when you had Vikings. They were selling uh, different groups from Europe that they were kidnapped. They were selling them to uh, Muslim markets in North Africa. And one cool thing when I when I was doing my research uh, a while back, I came into contact with this. Uh, there were Viking burial grounds that were found where the Vikings had Arabic stitchings on some of their burial material and whatnot, um, referencing Allah. And I found this out. So the Vikings were actually the first people to settle Russia. They were called the Rus. And these were Viking people that settled Russia. They actually founded Russia. They're called the Rus, right? But what I also found out is during the medieval period, um, when Muslims were encountering these Vikings, they were noting them for their huge, their broad stature. Because, you know, Scandinavians are some of the largest people on earth you know, after like the uh, uh, the Deka people, but the Deka are more so for their height, but these people just are like really genetically robust people, kind of like, you know, like a lot of those Wolof and Sinera people that you'll see in Senegal. There are just certain groups where they just have like such a robustness and it, it's it's uh, it's shown in their physicality. But when the Muslims, when they were encountering these Viking groups, they were calling them Abahusiyah, and, it, and I think it, it meant something to the effect about, like, their body type, their, their broadness and, and whatnot, how they look. And funny enough, that became the name that they applied to themselves in when they – uh, that's funny enough, that was the name that they applied to themselves when they were in Russia. So the Rus, the, Rus, the Russians – comes from the Vikings, and the Vikings got this term from the Muslims that called them that. And even when you look at Italy, you see the term mafia. There was a little island off of the coast, once again, that was uh, inhabited by Muslims, that was called uh, mafia. And I think that term mafia has like a term, it's called like like brave or bold men um, in Arabic. So you just see the influence of Arabic, you know, in different parts of, uh, of Europe from a, li- from a linguistic perspective. It's just like a really fascinating um, and a beautiful thing to me, nonetheless. But when we talk about the Moors in, in general, you're talking about the Berber. Uh, and the Berber is the name just Bari, and it comes from the Greek. It just means like you're speaking gibberish and that name kind of stuck and people started calling these people Berbers. But you want to look at the general, Tariq ibn Zaid. So Tariq ibn Zayed, uh led the, uh, a massive army of, I think, about like maybe 20,000 people into Spain or what would have been called Al-Andalus. And Al-Andalus meant land of the Vandals. The Vandals were a Germanic tribe that had, or essentially they were Visigoths. They were uh, Visigoths or Germanic tribe. Um that had uh, uh, taken uh, Spain from the Roman Empire about 200 years earlier because basically, you know, it was hard to kind of keep a foothold at that point. And even uh, the Vandals had actually came into certain parts, certain small parts of North Africa as well. And the ruler of, of, of the Visigoths in Spain at that time, or the Vandals, or Al-Andalus on the Iberian Peninsula, was uh, a king by the name of Roderick. So 711 AD, you had Tariq ibn Zayd that came in, and he found it was like a certain rock, a certain uh, mount that he came and he claimed, and that mount would become uh, the Mount of Tariq, and it was corrupted eventually into Gibraltar. So If you want to know the name, Gibraltar is named after that general that led that invasion into Spain uh, in 711 A.D. And I believe uh, by June or July of that year, um, they would have, he, 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 they would have got, they would have, I think uh, King Roderick died in battle. They, uh, Tariq made his way all the way to Toledo and essentially most of, uh, of, uh, Spain, um, Acquiesced and capitulated to the Moors rule. And so um, that's essentially like how you get that, get the Moors initially in Spain. Um, But I think what I want to kind of focus in on briefly is two empires that you have to look at when you're talking about the West African connection to Spain. So you have to look at the Almoravid Empire and the Almohade Empire. Um, I'm going to kind of talk a little bit more about the Almoravid Empire more so than the Almohad Empire um cuz the Almohad the Almohad Empire uh I don't think it well no they did have um a, a, a big impact but I kind of want to stick with the Almoravid Empire cuz uh I don't want to keep you guys any longer than an hour and I'm like running here so I'm going to try to like whoop, get you guys out of here. So anyway The Almoravid Empire was essentially a dynasty that would have spread across North Africa, North, excuse me, Northwest Africa, down the west coast of Africa, at least to Senegal, and through Spain. And so, the uh, the Almoravid Empire, pardon me, the Almoravid Empire, um, it would have been founded in the 11th century. So, when you think about the Almoravid Empire, it could be drawn back. To uh Yahya Ibn Ibrahim. Yahya Ibra- Yahya Iber- excuse me, Yahya Ibn Ibrahim. Uh he was a Berber of the uh, Godala tribe and they would have this tribe would have inhabited the northwest coast of Africa on the Atlantic of modern day Morocco. And he went in 1048 uh, CE, he actually went on Hajj to Mecca. And when he came back from Hajj, he brought another like kind of uh scholar with him by the name of Abdullah ibn Yasin. And they came back and they kind of had this puritanical view of Islam and they were trying to convert people along their way in North Africa. They were getting rejected. They almost died, almost got killed. But they were kind of picking up like straggler followers here and there. And what they actually did, they retreated. And they retreated into West Africa. And they actually made their way to an island called Tkereh, to uh tek, I'm, I don't know I butchered that word, but it's T E K R U R. And they made their way there and what they did they started to galvanize other followers in the region, uh certain berbers, etc. And it was from this place, now called Morfil Allen uh in Senegal, that the Almoravid Empire um would have expanded. This is kind of like the birthplace, this is the catalyst. And also, I just kind of want to note uh, speaking of Senegal, is that centuries as the centuries went on, Senegal kind of became a hub for uh, 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 Sufi Sufism in Africa. So Sufism, if you study it, is the esoteric branch of Islam. That's what Sufism is, and a lot of people know the great Sufi poet uh, Rumi, um, who was also a philosopher as well. And matter of fact, in uh, Senegal you had the, uh, Maradi Brotherhood, which is a Sufi brother, uh, brotherhood, Sufi order. And, um, the late great Shikanta Jop actually is a descendant from the family. That's of that particular brotherhood. And so that's just kind of like an interesting fact to know. And the other thing with the, the rise of the Almoravid empire, you saw the decline of the Ghanaian empire or the Wagadu empire. And, uh, it was actually called Wagadu because Ghana was the name of the king. But travelers that came from outside, they came to Ghana. You know, they would call it. Uh, they would call, excuse me. They would call it Ghana after the king. It's kind of like how when Pizarro, Francisco Pizarro, and his men, when they went to the Inca Empire, the Inca is the name of the king, but they didn't know the name of the empire, so they call it the Inca. Uh, the but that was the name of the king. Same thing here in Virginia, the Powhatan Confederacy. The Powhatan was the title of the king. The actual empire was uh, uh, Sennacomo. That was the name of the Powhatan, the actual empire that would have been here in the state of Virginia, but the Powhatan was the title of the king. So a lot of times when people are coming from the outside to these cultures, they'll take the title of the sovereign and they'll use that to denote the whole land mass and that's um, that's actually just not the case. But... The Almoravid Empire, what it actually did, the important thing that I want to uh, point out here briefly is that the Almoravid Empire, it allowed a deeper cultural inter- intimacy between black Africans uh, from West Africa, Berbers, and those of Spain. And so quickly, I just want to say this. So when you look at uh, uh, the Morse influence in Spain, You know, certain words were introduced like alcohol, algebra. These are Arabic terms. Uh, You look at, um, matter of fact, like, just like if you look at the city of Cordova in the 11th century, you're talking about mosque, lit streets, elevated sidewalks, irrigation systems, um, you know, uh, planting of mass gardens and fruits, etc. And matter of fact, you know, in Spain, the sophistication of the of the medicine uh, was so advanced that you had Moorish uh, physicians that would actually go to other parts of Europe and treat the uh, aristocracy or the, the the royalty of these different kingdoms. Because there was a time in the world where Islam was kind of seen as the religion of cultured people. It was it was the center of science. You know, you can go and look at Baghdad. Baghdad was an intellectual hub. Cairo was an inter- intellectual hub. Timbuktu was an intellectual hub. Cordoba was an intellectual hub. So these places where you had kind of like the uh, interfusion of commerce and Islam. (coughs) Pardon me. (coughs) When you see the interfusion. (coughs) Let me say that again. That's not a COVID cough or a 420 cough. That's just a cough. But anyway, when you see these interfusions of Islam and commerce, you also see intellectualism. And what Islam became, what the Moors really did, is that after the fall of Rome, a lot of the information had been lost to most of Western Europe. And it's not to say that nothing was going on, because even though during the so-called, quote-unquote, dark ages, there were still people in Europe that were innovating stuff. I know we would like to kind of think that it was nothing going on, but that's just not the case. Um, But what Islam did is that it kind of became a vessel and a repository of all of these different places they interfaced with and ended up conquering. Because when you look at Islam, like, I mean, I would say at its inception and then, like, later on, especially during the, the what would have became the, the Renaissance period, is that it was a highly intellectual religion. And if you go back to the 4th century uh, A.D., it was actually um, Theodosius who was like this Christian monk who had closed down all the mystery schools uh, in Egypt. He, he made an edict that like made them like, yo, we're not we're not doing that here. So. um, Yeah. But anyway, a lot of these teachers of like Aristotle, Pythagoras, Hippocrates, Galen, all of these different things started to make their way back into Europe via the Moors. And one of the biggest things that you have to look at is the uh, Hindu-Islamic numeral system that made its way into Europe via the Moors. Because before that, they were kind of using like these cumbersome Roman numerals. And the problem with that is that you don't have use of the decimal, nor do you have the use of the number zero uh, when, you, when, you, when you're using these kind of antiquated uh, uh, rudimentary numeral systems. Whereas, like, you can get into more complex mathematics when you're just using uh, zero, you know, or you can use a decimal, which the more is reintroduced, uh, or introduced, rather, into Western Europe. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, literature, you know, um, different sanitary habits. Not to say that people there were dirty and all this stuff, but just the... They brought the health and the science behind why things need to be clean, why people need to do X, Y, and Z, babe, et cetera. So uh, it was like an enlightening period. And I would dare argue uh, the catalyst for the uh, Renaissance or one of the catalysts, because, you know, also Europe got ravaged by the Black Death as well. So that, that had a huge impact on the population. But one of the oldest universities in the world is located in Morocco, and it was established in 850 uh, CE, Common Era. That's what that that particular acronym means, Common Era. So if I say CE, Common Era, BCE, before the Common Era. I know a lot of people like to say before Christ, after Christ, you know, before death or whatever, you know. But that's essentially what, what it means if you talk to any reputable historian or anthropologist. So, yeah, and and then if you, you know, I also look at what was going on in West Africa. I mean, Tim, Timbutu was a hub. You had people that came all, as far away as Baghdad that came there to study. It's actually a funny story about Mansa Musa when he uh, came back from Mecca. I don't know what was up with, like, these uh these African kings and stuff. It was like, every time they go to Mecca and Hajj, they want to bring back, like, teachers and all of this stuff. It just was a thing. But, uh <laughs> He brought back uh, two teachers. I can't remember their names, but you know, they were going to come and they were just going to like flex on the black scholars in Mali and teach them, right? And when they came, they tried to debate these scholars at the universities uh, at at Sankare in Mali. Look, man, from what the ancient writers say, the Malian scholars chewed up these guys that came from Egypt. They left. They were like, yo, we can't even do nothing here because, you know, we, we getting embarrassed. So they went to North Africa. You had uh, Akhmadu Baba, who's one of the greatest scholars in African history, period, hands down. Please look him up. And if you want to learn more about the different scholars in West Africa, it's a book that you can get that's called the Tariq Al-Fatesh, and it, 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 it talks extensively I had this book at one time, I lost it, but it talks extensively about scholarship in Western Sudan and Mali. And the reason why I wanted to kind of briefly kind of go over the Moors really quick is that uh with the Moors, I think the beautiful thing with the Moors is that you, and, and it's kind of closer to our era. I mean, you kind of could go back and you could talk about Um, For example, at the opening of the Roman Colosseum, there were, like, uh, black Africans there at the opening of the Roman Colosseum. Pardon me. At the opening of the Roman Colosseum, there were black Africans there. And you could talk about the uh, black people that were in the Roman army. You could talk about uh, the the Ethiopian king that sent 10,000 troops to Troy and all of that stuff. But I want to pick something a little bit more relevant. And then... As you know, once we end with the uh, Reconquista, with uh, Ferdinand and Isabella and the expelling of the Moors and the expelling of Jews and whatnot, we get into the Columbus epoch. And a lot of important things happened in the 1490s. You know, I mentioned earlier with the fall of Constantinople, uh, you know, you look at Columbus coming across the Atlantic. So a lot of heavy things happened, but... When you, when, you, when you study uh, the Moors, I think the beautiful part is that you get to see the interactions. And I'm not just talking about the conquering and the invasion stuff, but we get to see uh, black people and white people uh, interface in a paradigm that's foreign to what we perceive as race, as human interaction. And it kind of does that thing of, oh, man, well, what were we doing before slavery? And I'm going to start doing more episodes like this and doing more content like this. But I love talking about the Moors. Um, the, for me to really go in on the Moors, I, I would need like an eight-hour podcast. And I might do a part two to this where I kind of dig a lot deeper. This is really a, a general covering of the Moors and just why I wanted to talk about them. Because it allows us to see how did black people and white people prior to the advent of Columbus coming to the new world, interface with one another, you know? What did we think and, and, and see and, and learn about one another? You know, you have a uh, matter of fact, and I want to point this out, and then I'm going to go ahead, and we're going we're gonna to peace out really quick. You have Al-Jahiz. Al-Jahiz was a zoologist in 9th century Iraq, black guy. Um, he talked about the Zanj Rebellion. But he also wrote a book called The Book of Animals. And Al-Jahiz, and the name means "Google eyes, yeah, really big eyes. But Al-Jahiz was this uh, zoologist in 9th century uh, Iraq and Basra. And what he did was he noticed that animals, through selection, would evolve certain traits to survive. And if that sounds familiar to you, is that Darwin made the same argument as well in his work. And I'm not saying that Darwin knew anything about Al-Jahiz, but Al-Jahiz would have been a, this black zoologist, more in 9th century Iraq, that actually discovered the theory of, of evolution almost a thousand years before Darwin or Lamarck or Ramus Darwin, all these other people, would have even tried to uh, conceptualize any of those theories. So... Uh, we have to have a, a, a bigger scale to look at our contributions to world history, whether they've been noted or not noted. Both are important. But anyway, this is Hoikawaiko Timmons. This has been episode 60. Thank you for tuning in. Take care. Much love and peace. Love y'all. This has been episode 60 of No Truce Barred. Make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is No Truths Barred Podcast, and make sure you're following me on social media at Hoyt, H-O-Y-T, underscore, Kwaku, K-W-A-U, underscore, Tim, that's T-I-M-M-O-N-S, and make sure to follow my new page, which is underscore, No Truths Barred Podcast. Thank you. Much love.